I write in defense of flogging, something most people consider too radical for debate, not worthy of intellectual discussion. But please don't put down this book and move on, upset that I even broached the subject. If that's your temptation, bear with me for just a bit longer. My defense of flogging, whipping, caning, lashing, call it what you will, is meant to be provocative, but only because something extreme is needed to shatter the status quo. And that, ultimately, is my goal. There are 2.3 million Americans in prison. That is too many. I want to reduce cruelty, and flogging may be the answer. My opening gambit is simple. Given the choice between five years in prison and ten brutal lashes, which would you choose? Welcome to the big read cast. Oh, it's <laughs> Welcome to the small readcast. Do not adjust your channels. This is still the big readcast. Uh, Bill and I have just gone off book. We chose to do a very short little text in between our usual big reads. Um, so bear with us. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. Bill, you want to tell them what we're reading this this off ad hoc podcast? All right. So we are reading In Defense of Flogging by Peter Moskos which is a 2011 book that is written, uh, as discussed, in defense of flogging as a criminal justice punishment. Um, it's a short book, again, about 150 pages, and he writes to say that our current criminal justice system is, is, a, is a big mess, and what we could do instead is flog people as a method of punishment. Uh, he puts it forth, he summarizes the current way our penitentiary system got where it is, and he deals with some objections, and then he's done. It's it's a little tiny book, and we thought it'd be a fun kind of... Fun is not the right word. Let me try that again. We thought <laughs> discussing In Defense of Flogging, which is actually a very serious and unpleasant book to read in a lot of ways, would be a, a worthwhile conversation to have in between our larger sort of big read projects. Yeah, so let's... And like just for house cleaning stuff, like, so what we're going to do with this podcast, we're, we're kind of... Our goal is still to do four podcasts a year of books that are 500 pages or larger. But it turns out when you have a podcast about reading with one of your buddies and you read a book that you like a lot, which is true of like basically every book I've read since our first podcast, your thought is like, I'd love to talk about this with my buddy. Um, and this book, Bill, it was Bill's suggestion he found it. It just, it's a perfect book for discussing. And also, I don't know, like for a lot of people out there, if you, if you don't know a lot about criminal justice reform or anything else, it was a good introduction for me on a lot of subjects that I, I didn't know enough about, um, but hopefully this podcast will do some of that same work in recapping what he discusses. Yeah, um, so our, our goal is still just, as Joel said, to do four big reads a year, uh, one a season, but we may do small reads in between as the you know, as the spirit moves us, as they, as they used to say. Uh, so we may do no more of these oh, Bill, ever again. Bill, they still say that where I'm from. <laughs> That's not, that doesn't go out of, that, that phrase never goes out of style. The spirit moves through all centuries. Okay, keep going. I'm sorry. Anyway, so we, we may, depending on how the spirit moves, we may do uh, quite a few of these. We may do never 
ever any we may never do one again and they're going to uh to make another reference here come on you like a thief in the night because we don't want to announce them and make ourselves stressed about it in between our big reads which are already a fair amount of work um i'm gonna see if i can throw in some more maybe quasi blasphemous spiritual scriptural references as we go i'm very excited about that we'll see how we do <laughs> it'll be great fun so um, I think the the only other thing I want to say about this book, um, which I say probably I'll say throughout the podcast, is is just a, it is a super serious subject. Um, but my goal for this podcast, our goal for this podcast, I should say, because it was totally Bill's idea to to have this text, is just to have a discussion that I wouldn't get to have otherwise. Right? That continues to be the case for all the books we're going to read. Um, this one's more serious because it deals with real life issues. But I think our, our intent is still to kind of have a, a fun, jovial conversation. So I want to put that out there up front just because, I don't know, um, if you have family in prison or you've gone through it in life, my guess is that this may be a more sensitive subject. And it's not our, it's not our intent to trivialize anything um, that we talk about on this podcast, but especially with a nonfiction book about real-world issues. Our goal is just to get at it from different angles and to you know, maybe discuss something that I wouldn't discuss with anyone else. Um, so hopefully that's clear from the whole podcast. But um, but yeah, I think the book was, I don't know, I guess, I, I don't remember what we talked about last time as far as um, the winter journey, the worst journey in the world. But um, I do think uh, this book, if you didn't read the last one, this book is so readable. This book is a, a, a one-sitting read. Um, it's like a long magazine article. So more than anything else, I, if you want to just have a quick Saturday read, this would be a great find. Yeah, and hopefully our, con- our conversation will be pretty comprehensible whether you read it or not. But this would definitely be an easy one to pause here, read the book, and come back to because it's, it's such a short, easy read. I read it in – I mean, I took notes and I read it in like an hour and a half. Like it's not, it's not a hard thing to get through. So yeah. the only other thing I'd say to Joel's point earlier is um, we're hoping to read things and talk about things that have serious ramifications for the rest of the world, both this and also in our big reads going forward. And we're going to try to talk about them without worrying too much about – sort of censoring ourselves, because as Joel said, we're talking as two buddies. But if you do think we, we really screwed up and got out of our lane, do just let us know, because it was probably by accident. Um, but we are definitely interested in, in, in feedback if you think we said something very silly or offensive or ignorant. Um, please correct us rather than letting us continue to toil in ignorance. Um, yeah, and more than, more than any other podcast, I'd love to hear if someone out there actually has a lot of resources on, on prison reform or more thoughts about it. I'd, I'd love to hear more. Um, you could definitely email us or, or tweet at us. Cause I, it's definitely a subject I'm going to read more about going forward. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's get to it. Let's, let's cast a pod. Sounds good. Here we go. All right. Well, I think the, the first thing that'd be easiest to start with is you found this book. Um, you want to just tell me like, how did you find it and why did you want to talk about it on the podcast? Yeah, so there's a webcomic that's pretty popular called SMBC, which at least used to stand for Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal. It's just kind of a gibberish, uh, I don't even know, like a, like a far side kind of thing. They just kind of do daily gags. Um, but some of them are pretty long and philosophically complicated. And he went off on this weird sort of gag that's based on this book, as it turns out, about a world where they replace other forms of punishment with flogging so the only people who commit crimes are like bdsm fantasists and it fixes crime because no one wants to go to jail anymore because it's too weird um and i was just kind of laughing at the joke and i hovered over the alt text and it said inspired by peter moskos's delightful book or something like that in defense of flogging and i said what now (laughs) yeah uh and i i looked it up on amazon and was expecting to find 
I don't know, some kind of joke memoir or something. And it is, in fact, actually a book in defense of having a system of punishment based around flogging. And I was surprised and picked it up. And as I was reading it, I it was like oh, two, three, I don't know, it was not very long after we had recorded the... Um, worst journey in the world podcast mm-hmm. and the whole time i was reading it i was just like gosh i just really want to talk to joel about this and <laughs> then i figured you know we could just do do that i, I we could, could just, just talk about it <laughs> there, there's actually no requirement that we we not talk about other books <laughs> right no so i yeah so i think okay so the i mean i yeah so the first of all this is a great choice for a book um and i'm going to continue making this caveat hopefully not too much that uh, I I'm I have no criminal expertise backgrounds. I know you're a lawyer, but you you might claim some of the same. I have no idea. Um, but I I don't I mean I don't study this. I'm familiar with some of like the the trendy stuff right now as far as uh, the new Jim Crow. I've read some Michelle Alexander stuff, but like I don't know a lot about this. That being said, I think it made this book perfect um, for me at least as an introduction to maybe. Okay, we'll get to that later. Okay, so I guess what I, I wanted to ask you though is he builds his argument around this first hypothetical question um, right at the very beginning of the book. You're sitting before a judge, sitting before a judge, and you either get to have 10 years in prison or like five lashes or whatever. I may have inverted that. Yeah, but, um, way five years in prison or 10 lashes. 10 years, yeah. yeah. Okay, so right, one lash for every six months, right? Okay, yeah. so I, I just wanted to kind of – I wanted to just ask you, like, so he makes a hypothetical. He assumes everyone will say, I'll take the lashes. But would you, you're sitting before a judge, you get lashes or you get 10 years in prison. What do you take? I mean, it's really hard to see why I'd take the years in prison. I don't, I mean, lashes are bad, right? Like, and he doesn't shy away from that. He's very clear that uh, he's not talking about a pleasant experience, right? (laughs) I, uh. I don't know. Prison is just really unpleasant, and ten years is a very long time. <laughs> so I, so I actually, what I started to do, and like, so I, I didn't read, I didn't finish reading the book until just a couple of days ago. But I read enough of it that I was, I was like visiting with family and friends, and I, I, I wanted to just know, right? Who, what would people say? Because I assumed I had the same reaction. I was like, yeah, definitely give me the lashes because I can go home to my kids or to my wife or to whatever I want to do, and you know, it'll be, it'll be horrible, and yet it'll be over, which is his argument. But I was just, I asked everyone this question that I could think of, like, you know, male, female, older, younger, um, a few older people hesitated, you know, because he talks about like being medically able to survive lashes. Yeah. Um, like my, <laughs> like my grandpa hesitated, but, um, but everyone said lashes, every single person. And so I think this book has some real problems, but it, it was honestly, like I was kind of surprised at how quickly he got me thinking about corporal punishment as like an alternative to what's going on um i don't know yeah so i i don't know it's it's a crazy book with a crazy title in some sense but i think he sort of he, he has a really strong argument is basically what i would say well one of the things i found interesting about this book is, is not just its ideas and again to, to echo something you said earlier i am a lawyer but i i am not a criminal lawyer and so aside from right. a couple of classes i don't i don't have a lot of experience with the criminal justice i have some friends who are you know on both sides of the bar in that, but they're mostly pretty new attorneys. I don't have, you know, I don't, I don't have any special insight into prison systems or criminal justice or whatever. Um, you know, I know just enough about some of the constitutional questions to say something hopelessly wrong. So I'm going to actually just shy away <laughs> from any of that. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think the way he, this book is interesting to me, not just because of the substantive argument he makes, but because of the way he makes it. 
I think it's a really fascinating because it's really short. I mean, that's the idea behind these sort of supplementary episodes we might do is it's only on my printing, including the acknowledgments, 156 pages. And it's a little tiny book. Like it's yeah, physically a it's small, small book with pretty large type, actually. So it's I think I've probably read things on the Internet that are at least this long. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a pretty short thing. But he opens with this. It's almost like a syllogistic argument, right? It's just flogging is bad, right? Flogging is unpleasant and painful. Mm-hmm. But everyone on Earth would rather take 10 lashes than five years in prison. So what does that say about prison? <laughs> and it's just kind of really hard to argue with that, I think. Because, yeah, I mean, you actually did it. I didn't talk to people. But I just don't know who would choose prison with anything like a realistic understanding of our prison system. I just can't see who that person is unless maybe they were in such poor physical shape due to age or disability or, or whatever that they wouldn't survive the lashes. Like that would make sense. But other than right. that, I don't know. I don't know who picks prison. <laughs> so, let, I mean, so I, I hopefully we'll get to some of the details later. But I, I think so. I think there is a tension in this book, though, that exists from at least the writing side of things um, as far as like what his project is, because you just said it perfectly. So he sets up this really neat syllogism. That in some way, like it's like a lightweight reductio ad absurdum, right? If this thing is so bad, but you would take this thing over the other thing that you're promoting, your then your position for prison is absurd, right? Yeah. Um, but so to what I mean, I so I I think he's he's trying to do two things at once, and I I'm not sure he does both of them. I, I, I I'm not sure he does both of them well. The first thing he's doing is I think showing exactly how messed up and ineffective and maybe wrong-headed a lot of the current mass incarceration thinking is right like that's yeah. clearly a goal of this book is to say if we're going to consider flogging <laughs> a possibly better alternative to prison we've got to rethink not just like how to make it a little better but the whole the whole system from the ground up we've got to rethink the whole project of penitent penitent you know um caging and so all that to say is like the second project is he is it seems like to me especially at the end of the book he is putting forth a perhaps sincere argument for flogging as a real world policy and I I I, I as much as like the argument in theory connected with me and made me want to learn more about like how to get involved even with like you know movements that damn the prison system I, I don't know that he, he got me on board with the real-world policy. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a real tension in this book. Um, I, I haven't read very many sort of short pieces like this where the author is quite as worried about his own premise as this one, right? <laughs> like, yeah. he's repeatedly <laughs> yeah. kind of unwilling to say, I actually think this, except for all the times when he puts a lot of thought into it and says it's better in every way. Like, on page... <laughs> Yes. Well, on page 147, he says, yeah, the need for flogging is not something that should be celebrated. I have no intention or desire to glorify caning. On the contrary, I hope never to see it. And yet I firmly believe flogging is better than what we have, both for society and for those being punished. And it's such a weird sentence. He's like, this is better in every way. We should absolutely do it, but I don't know if we should do it. <laughs> well, and he, and I think on the same page, I made, I made a similar note in that section, because that's where he also talks about slippery slope, right? So he's trying to, yeah. of course, counter... 
anyone who might say, well, if we start doing this as a punishment, like, what's going to stop us from returning to this kind of brutalizing of, you know, flesh as a way to just correct everything? And so, but you're right, because he'll say at one point, you know, um, flogging would solve this problem. There's no slippery slope issue. Oh, but I'm with you, man. It's it's so gross. How could we do it? And I, and so, and I don't know if he's just, I mean, so it seems like, it seems like he's doing that because he's so desperate for the first thing to work out, his reductio ad absurdum argument, that yeah. he, he doesn't want to sacrifice that for his real world policy. And yet... I mean, he, I mean, wh- I, what else are we supposed to do? I think he really means that. What else, if the whole system is broken, what other, how, how else can you, you know, bring justice, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's a, it definitely got me thinking much more than I thought I would. I thought I would maybe be a little more dismissive. I don't know. I, uh, I would agree, though. There's a, there's a real, it's one of the things I thought was very interesting about, about the book in general is he's, very committed to like a retributivist theory of justice right is what is what i think it's often called a theory that that legal punishment is about punishment right that it's not about rehabilitation it's not primarily about incapacitation although those are certainly it's not it's not a completely an either or situation but that part of the reason we want to do this is because we should punish people who do bad mm-hmm. things, right? Right. Like, he, he talks about how it's not much comfort to you. He has, he has that example about the Reformatron machine, that if you, sort of the, the idealized version of a penitentiary where you could put somebody in a box who's committed a crime and push a button and the magic box would fix his inclination to commit crimes, and he'd walk out what rumpled but otherwise unharmed. And he talks about how that might be okay in some ways, but it doesn't actually satisfy our desire for justice, right? Mm-hmm. And I think I was when I when I picked up the title of the book, I was expecting the whole book to feel sort of like that, right? To be more of a it is good to hit people because it inflicts pain <laughs> and it is good to cause pain on people who do bad things. And he doesn't not say that, but that's not what the book is exactly about. And so that's it's always interesting when he sort of dips back into that sort of more retributivist theory. Um and it, I don't know. It's it's just such a weird. It's hard to talk about. I, well, <laughs> and that's so, why I okay, wanted so, to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. No. And I. Well. So I think I think he, this is actually one of his weaker areas. I thought. So I because I remember. So I was. I had actually. I tracked it down. That C.S. Lewis actually has a whole essay about um, the humanitarian theory of punishment. Right. And he, right. And he basically he has this really smart. Thing. He talks about it in a really intelligent way. I'm not sure I agree with him. By the way, but he. I think he has like a better theoretical framework. For um, for why humanitarian theory of punishment, which is punishment that would reform, right? That would be the idea that we're trying to treat criminals, not just you know punish criminals. Um, and he has a really quick line. I'm going to read just a little bit from this essay. Um, it's called "It's a Humanitarian Theory of Punishment." Um, so C.S. Lewis says, "My contention is that this doctrine, merciful though it appears." really means that each one of us, from the moment he breaks the law, is deprived of the rights of a human being. Um, This is because, you know, uh, we demand of a deterrent not whether it is just, but whether it will deter. We demand of a cure not whether it is just, but whether it succeeds. Thus, when we cease to consider what the criminal deserves, and consider only what will cure him or deter others, we have tacitly removed him from the sphere of justice altogether. Instead of a person, a subject of rights, we now have a mere object, a patient, a case. Again, I'm not sure that I, I don't think I agree with all of that. For example, a person being defined as a subject of rights makes some political sense, but is that really 
you know, is that really a great definition for people? Um, I don't know if that's true, but it's, I think it is a, it added some weight, I guess, to uh, Moskis' argument, because I think he was really weak on that front of why we shouldn't be considering a humanitarian theory. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think there's a Kantian argument that I read. I don't know if it's actually Kant or somebody else, and so I'm, I'm going to, but which is in defense of a retributivist theory or a, even the death penalty um, as a way to actually treat people as ends in themselves, right? Right. That, and that, that rhymes with what Lewis is saying, I think, that if, if, our yes. only, if our only purpose in legal, you know, lawbreaking, punishment for lawbreaking is what will make this person not commit crimes in the future, we're not actually treating that person as an end in himself. And so it violates the categorical imperative. And I've, again, I don't really know how to feel about that. Parts of that, I, I, I sort of resonate because I think we do have to be careful with uh, a lot of laws that are designed to fix social problems end up, I think, treating people as, 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 as objects, as things to be corrected rather mm-hmm. than as, as rational agents. But at the same time, you know, I, I don't want to get too caught up in giving criminals their just desserts, both for practical reasons, because I think I that know. gets manipulated, manipulated to punish people that are inconvenient rather than people who've actually done bad things. And also because I, I don't know, I'm always leery about the state exercising physical force on people. And so I'm not likely to be super jazzed about it when someone says it's just what they deserve, you know? Uh. (laughs) Well, and and I, so that's where I think Moscow's has a really, I I actually appreciated the ways he, he tried to build some limits around his argument. And again, when, and when we keep this in the hypothetical realm, I, I'm more comfortable with it. As soon as we move it to a practical realm, I, I have issues with it. But even his like practical framework, I think it helps add some like theoretical weight to his argument that the current penitentiary system is bad. And I think where I wish he could have gone is so like I, I was looking at a couple of things online. So like when the book came out, you know, he did a little piece with Harper's where they asked him questions and I, like someone like quoted him, you know, Herman Melville's famous anti-flogging like speech, I think it was, which helped actually ban naval flogging. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and and, and so Moskos is, of course, he's dealing with an actual history of flogging where it's it was a real world thing, right? It wasn't just a <laughs> theory in the 1800s yeah. or 1900s or whatever. Um, so let's just say those, I, but I think if I was going to boil his argument down, it would be like, okay, so I'm not arguing, like when someone argues for prison, they're not saying, hey, keep a private cage in every supermarket or in your own home. And if someone disobeys you, lock them in a cage until they feel better, right? That's not like, that's not what prison is, right? It's not just a yeah. bigger version of a private cage, arguably. And I think he would say the same thing for his defensive flogging, that he's not saying we should have like a kind of an ad hoc arbitrary system, right? He said, you go before a judge and the biggest thing is you have to consent to flogging. And so yeah. you kind of you kind of put it in this bureaucratic state, which is both very terrifying, but again, like locking someone up in your closet is not prison any more than whipping maybe your brother because he stole your cookie would be Moscow's system of flogging. Does that make sense? So I, cause I do think he, he really is trying to control what he's proposing as opposed to maybe how you can misinterpret what he's proposing. Yeah, he, he, he mentions at one point later on, um, he's always troubled when he proposes, because he apparently proposed this idea sort of in conversations and with friends several times just to kind of right. see what people were saying. And he, he uh, his, his sort of mythos for how the book started was that he was at a dinner party and he'd already written his, so he was a, 
uh, a cop in Baltimore for a while, right? And he'd, right. he'd already written like a memoir about being a, a police officer in Baltimore and was talking to his editor and somehow the subject came up and apparently he said, I don't know, I guess maybe I want to write something in defense of flogging. And his editor <laughs> said, you will write this and I will publish it with exactly that title and no question mark at the end. Uh, and so that's kind of a fun, but he's gone around and talking about it for a while and he said, you know, one colleague begged me to reconsider for the sake of my professional career. I hope she's wrong. But also right. worrisome is when people say, great idea, right on. <laughs> and oh, how God, he, he's yeah. sometimes troubled when people are like, absolutely, that's a great idea and Flog I have no them. qualms. And he says, I don't, you know, I, I don't think we should just be hitting people left and right. Except, of course, when he does seem to think that that was cool. Oh, when with he talks beat and release? Beat and release cop police uh, oh, my policies. God in the good old days of, of being a cop. And that was the part that threw me the most for a loop. So I definitely want to talk about that for a minute because I think not only, I mean, I think conceptually he argues, he's not arguing for beat and release, which he describes as when the cops would find somebody who had done a bad thing and say, all right, buddy, do you want to get arrested or do you want me to hit you a bunch? And how most mm -hmm. people would choose to get hit allegedly. Right. And he says, maybe that was better. It kept people out of the system. He had some things to say about domestic violence that maybe we'll come back to that are complicated. But he seems to be sort of nostalgic for it. And he talks about some of the older cops he worked with wishing for those days. Mm -hmm. And on the, I think in a conceptual sense, he's not actually saying, and therefore we should do that. But he's saying that maybe shows that this kind of system can be better. But to what extent did that make you worried about it? Because I guess my sort of inherent skepticism is to be skeptical about... I mean, I don't want to just say the police, but that's just because I'm trying to be nice. I am skeptical about the police. Like, I, I am, and that's, that. maybe that'll get me in trouble somewhere, but I'm certainly skeptical about discretionary use of police violence <laughs> uh, for a lot of good reasons. And so when Moscow seems a little bit nostalgic for that, did that color your opinion about the book oh, as a whole? Because it definitely took me a minute to decide how I was going to feel about the rest of the book when I read that. No, I I thought I thought even just like strategically, it was a really like, it was a real misstep in the sense that um, if nothing else, he just didn't like he didn't contextualize what he was trying to say well, right? Because I think he gestures to like I mean, he even says I'm not saying we should return to this, but he definitely like you said it perfectly. There's definitely this weird nostalgia that he's not just representing; it seems like he's participating in, right? And part of that nostalgia, interestingly enough, is like a localism nostalgia. Like, so one of the like police commissioners, he he kind of says, who used to like this idea, talks about like, oh, you know, it used to be like you knew the kid and you kind of knew if his parents would keep him in line or not. And if he wouldn't, yeah. you know, you maybe you whoop him a little bit. Um, and so that, like, so like, I think he has a nostalgia, but I, I also, I guess the problem is that um, his whole defense of flogging, in my opinion, depends on this like, um, this standing before the judge, like at what point does it take place and how it's administered, right? And so to bring in, like you said, the discretionary <laughs> judgment of the police as a model for why maybe beating people and releasing them is better, it's like, well, so you've introduced a whole problem with flogging, which is human judgment, right? That like yeah. we took we took away flogging partly because um, there was a slippery slope. And it was interesting to read this as I'm also like reading um, this book called King Leopold's Ghost, which is all about. Yeah, uh, I've heard about that. Yeah. So it's it's the Belgians complete rape and Holocaust of the Congo area. And one of the most, you know, prolific tools of abuse was this thing I'm going to mispronounce, but it's called like, like the shikot. And it's this specific flogging instrument that was 
you know, it was officially in use, right? But of course, because it was officially in use, it got misused. And so I think his whole yeah. beat and release argument actually raises the question of like, I mean, I know you're trying to make this like sanitary, uh, sorry, sanitary Singaporean analogy, but like what you're really doing is you're, you're putting people in, in, I don't know, in the hands of <laughs> someone who has the right now to just, I don't know, actually, he even says to do it, maybe a potentially unconstitutional thing because you've given their consent. Like, I don't know, I, yeah, sorry, I've gone a little off the rails because it, I just think you can't get past the problem of a human being deciding how much pain is too much pain. Yeah. So this is related, right? Because I, I, I get tangled up in, in these questions about, am I a little worried about, again, both where he's coming from, given that he's seems to show a bit of a nostalgia for some stuff that I, I really can't defend. Like I can defend it in kind of a folksy way, but like not in any kind of practical sense. No. Can I say it is a good thing for the cops to decide whether or not to beat people? You know, I can't, yeah. no, <laughs> I, I can write that story where a good cop makes a good decision once, but I can't build a system around that, that I think is even remotely comprehensible. Um, exactly. Uh, and so stuff like that makes me leery. Like, what am I missing? But at the same time, every time I start to think, you know, it's a maybe there's a categorical difference between that kind of physical violence inflicted by the state upon somebody. All I can think of is, yeah, but people get guards beat up people in prison all the time. <laughs> right. No, you, so yeah. Every time I start to get tangled up in, in these, I think, very important and legitimate fears about how the system would go. I realize that I'm not sure anything that I've just worried about doesn't also apply to our current system. And maybe worse, right? Like maybe having the stand yes. something like a standardized flogging, I'm sure would be misused. But you know, that might be better than the guards just roughing people up in prison and hurting them probably just as badly. Uh, well, and without he, any oversight if, and with an incentive to hide it, you know. Well, one of the best points he made is it's, so. I I love that line when he says, um, "We've created a system where essentially the prisoners run the prison, right?" Yeah. Um, because of again, and and this is where I, I this is where the book convinced me. I, again, the defensive flogging. I don't know if that's the alternative to the current system, but he, if I was, if I was on the fence, and I'm not sure I was, but if I was on the fence, he did convince me that like the current system is garbage and should be burned to the ground on some level. Yeah. Um, and what you're saying, as far as like, is this violence okay? This violence is bad. We can't get away from that. But the problem is you, you've got to keep it in a context of comparison, right? That it's not – I'm not just saying we should flog people. I'm saying we got to punish criminals somehow. That's what he believes. That's, I think, probably what I believe on some level. Um, and it's just it, – I've chosen the most barbaric, <laughs> in some ways, punishment, and it's better. <laughs> it's better yeah. than being buried alive for 10 years where you're at the mercy of your own, you know, luck and, of course, gang systems and various things that you can't control. Yeah, and so the thing, like you're saying, the thing I always come back to is that I, I find it very hard to argue with this, even as it makes me very troubled. Um, because, like you're saying, it always seems to come back in comparisons. Um, and there's a couple of the things I, I found really interesting. He, he talks a lot about the honesty of physical violence in a way that I, I'm not sure how to feel about. Um, yeah, let, let, has, let, 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 let's chase that, though, because he actually, he actually brings in eating meat, which is really interesting. Yeah, exactly. Um, he talks about... Uh, oh, let me find it exactly. Where is it? I have it in here. Um, oh, come on. Oh, yeah. Live poultry stores on 137. He talks about... Uh, he goes to... 
Yeah, if you are brave, there are ways to confront the true costs of eating meat. Uh, you can hunt or, more feasible in the big city, at least see your dinner alive before you eat it. Not just talking about lobster tanks, there are two live poultry stores near me, and he can go out into the pasture, which he calls the petting zoo, and if he wants to roast one of the lambs, he points to it and they kill it. Now, of course, most people don't have the opportunity to do that sort of thing, I would argue. Um, I don't know. I'm sure there is such a place in Minneapolis. I don't know where it is. But this, this he makes a, a comparison between the prison system and sort of willfully shutting your, your eyes to the, uh, the slaughter of animals and the pain that's caused by that. And I, I think that's both a very troubling analogy because I'm always very nervous about things that compare mm-hmm. human victims of, of human evil to animals. Um, you know, PETA t- likes to talk about a holocaust of animals, and that's, that's a, a very fraught usage um, that I, I'm, I'm pretty uncomfortable with. Yeah, no, I'm, sense, I'm, I'm right? progressive like, in a lot of ways, but I, I do think that I agree with you. Saying a Holocaust is like, it's a, I don't know, it's a, it's kind of dishonoring to the actual Holocaust, I think. You know, I, I find that pretty troubling. <laughs> uh, but in kind of a similar system, right? Like, most of us can't defend modern factory farming of animals. Like, I don't, nope, I haven't read yeah. a principled defense of what we do to chickens. Um, I don't want to say it's impossible, but I, I don't know what it looks like. Uh no, it and doesn't so exist. I agree. <laughs> and and similarly, is there a principled defense of prisons in anything like their current shape? Because I'm not sure there is one. And the honesty of violence in that way, it's it's appealing in a lot of ways. And he also talks about how we're sort of allergic to to physical violence. A lot of us, but for a lot of Americans, it's not really that unusual. Um, and this is his he's talking about corporal punishment of children and some of that stuff. But he says. You know, for many Americans, violence is part of life. Uh, For many children growing up in disadvantaged neighborhoods, um, you know, the challenge isn't to follow the social norms of one's peers, but to actively resist them. Many of my Mm -hmm. students tell me they wouldn't be in college if it weren't for corporal punishment. And more interesting is that they tell me they're eternally grateful for this discipline. And he doesn't go off on this for a long time, but this, this sort of idea that not only is that maybe we shouldn't be quite so scared of physical violence. I don't know how to feel about it. Um, well, I, so I, I think, I mean, I, so I, I think a couple of things. I mean, I think he, he brings up interesting topics in general. Like, I think talking about spanking is really fascinating. Um, I mean, I was spanked as a kid. Um, yeah, so was I. Yeah, and I, and I, and when I was younger, my, my defense was always like, people who think spanking is bad probably are thinking of abuse. They're not thinking of spanking. I think there's a difference. Yeah. And I, I have some more thoughts now that I have my own daughter, and like, she's so, you know, she's far, she's years away from being like a spanking age, but. Anyway, so I think it's like I think we should actually talk about that. Cause I think it's interesting in general. But I actually think in the book he 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 lost force for me every time he got away from the very specific problems of the justice system, right? So yeah. like when he tries to rope in eating meat or you know corporal punishment for children or other things that like they, they do feel related. I thought he got off target because yeah, okay, they're related, but like speaking children. Is not it's it's not really a helpful thing to talk about, and, and if it is, which he didn't do, it would be because we spanked children to reform them, right? I don't like I like my mom was very specific. Like I wasn't just spanked because I was being punished. I was spanked because it was supposed to be deterrent, right? And so weirdly, he doesn't even chase the analogy as well as he could. Um, but I also think he he just I because the strength of this book is that when you shine a light on prison and what happens to you know you know the you know criminals or non criminals who are jailed for months and years before they're tried or whatever, like that's where the whole power comes from. I feel like you know so trying to advocate for a kind of a 
a return to you know a, a honest violence i thought was really weak to be honest only because not because it wasn't appealing in some form as far as like you know we all live in this system of mass animal slaughter that no one wants to talk about but because like you said it's its own issue with so many fraught problems that to draw it into the prison talk it, it just i thought i thought it just like diffused you know his his strength yeah. of argument um but I will say the one thing I wish he talked about actually weirdly, if he's going to bring up parenting and spanking, um, I remember this as a kid, you might as well. There's this great age when your parents aren't sure if they should spank you or ground you. And yeah. I don't know, I don't know about you, but like <laughs> I would, I would pray for spankings. I'd be like, Oh, and I, I would fake it. I'd be like, Oh mom, don't spank me. Don't spank me. Like, please, whatever you do. And like, because if you, and, but, but, but that's actually his argument, right? Like that's yeah. the argument for flogging is that you get to a certain age and having, you know, your toys taken away or being put in your room for, you know, the Saturday or something is so much worse than, you know, having your mom slap your butt a few times. Right. Like, um, I don't know. So I wish he at least made the analogy more fitting. And that's, so that's one of the, the real interesting things about this book, right? So, you know, like, the, th the theory of the state for a long time, right? People likened it to the relationship, the state and its people being sort of writ large, the father and his family, right? And there's obviously mm -hmm. a, a million reasons why that's very problematic, right? But yes, uh, some of these connections between child abuse or spanking which are not i think the same thing even if we shouldn't spank people right i think that's that's dishonest right. to inflate them um right but you know how do you reform your kid well and this he comes back to this in some ways okay i'm sorry let me start over <laughs> you're fine if it's worse to ground your kid like if your kid likes being grounded much less than being spanked at some point you might choose to ground him specifically for that reason right yes and so to what extent might there be a system of of a possible penitentiary system where it's exactly like that, right? Like the current prison system is so horrible that you I don't think you can really make a defense for it. And he seems to think that penitentiaries as a concept are a failed idea, right? Mm -hmm. Not only that our prison system doesn't work, but that prison systems cannot work, um, that they are inherently uh, not going to work. And he makes some pretty compelling arguments for that, I think, by tracing their history. But... Is there an argument that, no, the problem isn't that, that it, it could be possible to do a penitentiary that works, much as you might imagine grounding a child for a day might actually work? And may, I don't know. I haven't looked at the research. I don't know if grounding actually works or not, right, at, on, yeah. on a sort of broader societal level. But I could imagine that it does. Would there be a way to just ground people that looks sort of like a penitentiary but isn't subject to the same abuses that the modern penitentiary is i don't i don't know well so this is actually the other weakness of his of the book and, and it's a weakness that i feel like only an expert could really exploit because he he basically so what he'll do um i had a note somewhere but i'll he so he would make a really good argument for why um prison is doing this horrible thing right it's like people are stuck in jail for months before trial or they're like you know pre-trial deals could have been done with a crack of a whip literally right um yeah. whatever he makes some very convoluted but convincing argument for why prison is failing um both people accused of crime and society at large and then he'll just tack on and here flogging would fix this um but i think <laughs> Right, but I think the issue is that I'm sure. I mean, but he mentions other things. He mentions Canada has, like, a sentence. You know, sentencing that it takes. It's like the sentences are t twice as short. Right, they, they yeah. take way less time. 
um, to be in jail. And then similarly, he talks he, he off the cuff, he just mentions like uh, day reporting and some other things that I don't know much about. But so I, I feel like the, the real problem with this book is that he never put flogging up against an alternative, right? Like, okay, so should most people who are, you know, there for reasons that maybe they shouldn't be locked up for years and years, like could day reporting solve, I don't know, 85% of what he wants to solve with flogging? Because if it could, like maybe we shouldn't flog people. Do you know what I mean? Like I feel like that's the real issue is that there's no alternative besides flogging that's being used as maybe like a litmus test for, for what could fix the issue. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And he, he kind of, uh, let, me, let me quote from here. He says, but you may protest. Just because our prisons are a mess doesn't mean we should adopt something as horrible as flogging. If we were willing to tax more and spend wisely, we too, like most of Western Europe, could have a decent economy, good public schools, paid vacation, longer lives, less violence, shorter prison sentences, and an incarceration rate that's a fraction of what we have now. And his response to that is just to say, that is not our system. Americans like guns, cowboys, individualism, and being <laughs> yes. tough. You know, we should do better with what we have, but in the real world, with all of these things, um, money that could be spent elsewhere will not be helped saving criminal, helping criminals. And finally... Why not improve our criminal justice services? Why not indeed? And while we're at it, let's fix our schools, courts, public transportation, and healthcare. And one response to this could be, yeah, let's, right? Like, yes. maybe maybe flogging is better than the current system, but maybe rather than imposing flogging, we could change other things about our society, and that would be a better use of our time. I, I don't know. Um, but I think he doesn't... I don't know. On the one hand, that's not his project, right? His project is to say flogging is better than this system and he makes i think at least a pretty compelling argument that that's the case but the step from that to and therefore we should actually take imminent steps to implement flogging um which he's un he's very nervous about to be fair to yeah. him right he's not he's not he says he wants to do that sometimes and then he also says he isn't sure he wants to do that maybe the the, the so what of this book isn't so let's hit people it's so let's change everything else about our system but of course, he's also very nervous about utopian thinking and how that doesn't always result in result. I don't know. It's Well, so and I, I, where he contradicts himself most specifically, because I, I actually underline the same thing where he like he mentions Western Europe and again in Canada as like counterexamples. And he does kind of just like shrug at them and be like, well, Americans love guns, um, which is like a ridiculous, <laughs> you know, which is so stupid. But even worse than that is that another point in the book, um, which I know this is a popular like libertarian idea. But he wants to, he says we should legalize, regulate and tax drugs, right? We should just yeah. make it, you know, that'll take care of a lot of the problems we have right now. And my thought was when I read that, I was like, okay, that's probably true. I don't know if it is or not. Um, but first of all, that exists in parts of the world, like Amsterdam. And and so and on one hand, he's, he's saying I'm an advocate for European-style regulation. On the other hand, it could never work because we're America – but it, it seems to me like if he, <laughs> seems to me like there's a yeah like you're saying there's a little jump there where it's like okay but I, there are these these like various things that you yourself have outlined which would make the current system if not better maybe even unravel like a lot of the the you know the the ground up misconceptualizing of what prison should do and I I have no idea why we wouldn't do that stuff first like I have no idea why we would like I think pushing for legalization of drugs is a way more feasible public policy than flogging <laughs> um and so i don't know i mean i mean and you're right this is not the book for that in some ways but i think it because the book is so intent on flogging i think he does miss opportunities you know to either strengthen his argument or to strengthen 
a call for how to change what is happening. Because I'll be honest, like this book convinced me that prison stuff should change, but like what I'm going to, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to go out and find the first pro flogging candidate I can. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> like that's not really going to help me as like a citizen who wants this to change as well. When it's, you know, one could imagine a book like this, which says, where his takeaway is, so either advocate for flogging or work to reform prisons. But he describes people who are working to reform prisons <laughs> as people looking for comfier seats on the train to Auschwitz. Oh my gosh, I know. Like, he doesn't want people to read this book and come away thinking we should do prison reform as such. Like, <laughs> I know, no, I know. What are we supposed to do then, Bill? Like that—that that would be the question, right? Like, I don't so know what Moscow. So, what are we supposed to do? If like I, because you yourself have been. No, so it's 2018. This book was written in 2011. You spent the better part of a decade putting out this really provocative idea that has gained no real world traction and probably won't, right? Um, and so, like, so, like, so, if, it seems to me that in a weird way. At, at that at least in this particular instance like that would make him kind of a weird dreamer right because the idea of flogging is is not a utopia in the sense of good but it is an idealistic idea in the sense of you know it's a principle that will never be <laughs> implemented <laughs> yeah i mean um, i spent some time trying to imagine what would happen if you held this book up and ran for state senate you know and i just i just can't <laughs> imagine it working out maybe that's a failure of imagination on my part but i just <laughs> don't think anyone will vote for you. And I think both the right and the left for different reasons will just crucify you. And yes, for reasons in some ways for reasons that he's right about, right? Like he says, it's because it's uncomfortable to think about and we can put people in these dark holes and ignore them. And that lets us go about our lives. And that's a, you know, it's, it's a damning indictment of the system. He's right. I still don't think you're going to get elected. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I do think to, to chase another idea real quick that you mentioned, I, I really was taken with his insistence that the flogging, if it was a real thing, would have to be semi-public, but not like, you know, not like an arena or like, you know, out in the city square, but it would be like a courtroom atmosphere where there was decorum yeah. and there was, you know, sort of a sense of procedure um, and, and sobriety, right? Um and I, I, and I, again, like, like I would never want to go see a flogging. Who would? But I, I do think the, again, where he's using flogging to indict society is so effective because he's right. Like, I, I think he's totally right about we send people to a black box and we don't want to think about them ever again. That is exactly yeah. what we do as a society. We take these bunch of problem people, quote unquote, um, who are mostly poor, or almost all poor, and definitely mostly non-white, and we yeah. just put them in a black box where we don't have to like let them mar the you know the streets with their presence or whatever. Um, and so that and that so I, I don't know. So I thought that was again. I don't, again, I don't know that I would advocate for semi-public flogging, but it, it, as an as a way to starkly you know indict <laughs> what we're currently doing, it was so effective because I don't I don't know. I I felt personally indicted to be honest. That like yeah. I don't. I mean I, I've been to a prison once never you mean like i like like you know not it's not a thing i think about ever yeah um which is a problem well and this is so this all leads me to a question that i i i read this about the same time i read a very different book uh called the death of expertise by tom nichols and i don't like that book very much but the point i want to bring is they're both sort of short books that make a pretty direct small point um, that isn't really, 
it's sort of a, a broader logical point about what's wrong with our society, right? But yeah. whereas I wanted this other book, without going into a lot of detail, to give me a lot of facts and a lot of a lot of research because he just kind of says stuff and doesn't back it up, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder about this book. You know, I read I, I read a summary of this book, right? Like I read, I, I clicked through this web webcomic link to somebody saying this is what this book is about, and I said that's interesting. And then I read the book, and I came away not sure I had learned that much from the other 145 pages of the book. So my question is, should this book have been four pages long? <laughs> um, you know, for uh, for what it will mean for the broader discussion, uh, I think it, should, it shouldn't have been more than 20 pages, for sure. Because the only thing that I liked that made it complicated was the idea of... Um, the consenting criminal, right? Yeah. Um, like his, his act, I think his practical outlines, um, I don't know if they're helpful for public policy, but they were really helpful as a step-by-step indictment of what we currently do. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, yeah, but I agree with you that I, I definitely, more than once, I thought the book was just repeat. And, and also, this is what I said earlier, like he kept using these analogies to make a broader cultural point that didn't feel relevant. Like, that, you know, I know, like spanking children is a fraught topic for for good reason, um, and to bring it into this as some sort of like discussion of violence, like I just didn't make any sense. Even worse than that, he misreads Frankenstein. He talks about Frankenstein's monster as like some as like just a mo- the monster is the tragic figure. It's the whole the it's the the tragic figure of the book. Don't talk about Frankenstein. You don't know Frankenstein. <sighs> it was very yeah. exasperating. <laughs> That's apparently going around these days. People talking about Fra- I haven't to be honest, I've not actually read Frankenstein, so I, I shouldn't opine too much. But I, I know what goes down in Frankenstein, and I thought the <laughs> reading that the monster is the sort of tragic figure was canon. Like I didn't think that was. That's, a it's like out yeah, there it's the basic read. Wikipedia site. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, you know, I haven't read the book. Maybe 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 it's not. But I just I think that's sort of a a pretty elementary read of Frankenstein, from what I understand. Um, no, I, I, yeah, I'm mostly joking, but I did I did think he he lost. You're right. He this argument was 140 pages, and it, it should have been 20. So, one thing I, I wanted to bring up, um, he, he hangs his hat a lot on this concept of consent, and I think it does do a lot of a lot of good work for him, right? Because he he really wants to draw a line between his system, where you are literally given that choice: do you want 10 lashes or five years in prison? And whatever you pick is as long as you can medically survive the lashes, you are then given the lashes. Um, right. And he wants to differentiate that from systems where, no, just the sentences, you get hit a bunch. Um, <laughs> and so my question is, how meaningful do we find that concept of consent if the alternative is our current hellish prison landscape, right? Like, can you really say that you thought about it yeah. and consented to being hit if the alternative is being sentenced to 10 years of solitary confinement interspersed with gang violence and and uh, rape? You know, is that can you, is it, did you really consent to that? Is that really a meaningful thing to say? I don't know. What do you think? I no, I think you're exactly right. I I think that because I, I actually was surprised when he was outlining his kind of realistic version of flogging that the realistic version of flogging depended so much on the like subsistence of our current system, right? That like the flogging alternative only makes sense if everything he is indicting is in place. Right. So like like you're saying, if the alternative is this hellish thing he's described, of course you take flogging. But the, the, I, well, I thought he was going to I thought he was going to use flogging to dismantle that system. Does that make sense? Um, 
But the system still basically exists in his version because it's used as a stick with which to get you to take an actual stick. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's right. The system sort of pre assume, and maybe maybe that's not exactly like he might say it's a transitional thing, right? Because again, it is. He's not trying to solve every problem with this, no, so he true, might say true, true. that might be like a quasi practical in this otherwise mostly theoretical book, right? Tomorrow, you could theoretically pass a law in the state of Minnesota saying anytime the sentencing guidelines or whatever say years, multiply that by two and, or, yeah, multiply that or by, yeah, by two and then give that somebody that many lashes as on the table. And it wouldn't require a lot of infrastructure to do that. You'd have to hire, you know, some people to swing the sticks. But it wouldn't. So maybe that's kind of a practical point, and then theoretically the system might change in some way. But yeah, thirty years from now, we flog people. Now the prison industrial complex has been destroyed. The only people in prison are, you know, serial killers. What do you threaten Joe burglar with? Now exactly. So yeah. What's so what is he, what is he consenting to? Because once it's dismantled, you're just getting flogged. Right, like you're just saying, yeah. hey, your punishment. You stole some bread, right? The classic example. The punishment for selling bread is flogging. It's not flogging or two years. We don't have two years in prison anymore. So the idea of yeah. consent depends on the current system. Weirdly, I haven't so, yeah, thought about yeah. that, but that is because that's separate from the actual other issue I was thinking about. But you're right. That's what does this do down the line? That's a very and of course, maybe that, that's a broader indictment, right? That our current concept of, of the penitentiary is so ingrained in our our minds yeah. that even our alternatives rely on them. You know, and it's not fair to expect a 150-page book to solve everything, particularly because given the political infeasibility of, of actually doing this, it's probably not worth spending 500 pages building these castles in the sky, <laughs> right? But um, yeah, th- this does seem to sort of assume that the prisons exist. Otherwise, yeah, you're not consenting if either... So you're either not consenting because the alternative is a hellscape or you're not consenting because there's no other punishment. <laughs> right, right. So I don't know. I saw, It's hard, though, because that, that brings it to the, the larger point, which he didn't quite go to. And that's where I think another weakness was, where he didn't quite get to this very specific crystallized version of, like, um, basically, yeah, how do we respond to criminal behavior? And he, and he tries to do this, but, like, I think there's essentially, like, right, there's corporal punishment and non-corporal punishment. And so... At some point, I, I do think where he's going to run, run into trouble, even societally, is I, I don't think people want to punish criminals, actually. I don't think that, at least, at least a lot of America, they're not actually looking to punish criminals. They are looking to deter future crimes. And so weirdly, I think that to the extent that prisons um, keep criminals off the streets, whether or not that deters anything... That's still a physical thing you can point to, right? Well, that guy's not mugging anyone. It doesn't almost doesn't matter what the statistics are because they don't want the criminal to just be punished. They want the the they want the cancer from society removed, right? And so I, I like I, I think he actually would have to do a lot more work if this was a serious project. He'd actually have to almost like I don't know renew the argument for retributive justice because I I don't think the not in like maybe like maybe maybe in some circles back home where I where I come from in the West but like definitely out here in Central New York among all these academic people I hang out with I don't think they would buy into that at all. Well, I definitely think a retributive theory of justice is disfavored in sort of academic circles. That certainly was the impression I got in law school. Um, but I don't I don't know if I would agree that it, Americans don't want to 
punish criminals. I mean, I don't know how many times you still see the cable news talking point about prisons being a place where you get cable news and video game systems, right? Like, uh, which is not true, A, and B, <laughs> weird, right? Like, what, what, where do you want to put people? Um, and so I, I, think you st- I think there's still a long, large strain of vengeance in a lot of American society with regard to how we treat criminals. And I, th- I think it's definitely... Uh, bifurcated, like I, I say, I, I I suspect most of the people that you and I hang out with don't support. No, you. I mean, the retributive yeah, well, theory, right? Whereas my family I, I definitely guess, does. <laughs> say, if I had to guess, I'd bet a majority of Americans would sign off to something like a retributive theory of justice, and that's a that's a made up thing, right? I have no idea how to prove that. No, you. I think you're probably right. I guess I'm just thinking. I mean, I think yeah. I guess I'm trying to think like, um, think through how you would get the conversation from like like you're saying from off the idea of putting people in prison right because i think that it's so ingrained in our way of thinking that even people who are interested in retributive justice they still think in terms of prison right they don't i mean like i think it would still be a weird sell to like okay punish them but differently because prison is the only acceptable punishment because it has been for like a hundred, you know, fifty years here at least. I don't know. I, and this is off topic, but I guess I just I don't know how to get outside the prison mindset, except through corporal punishment. And yet, I I don't think most people would 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 support flogging on a ticket. <laughs> yeah, uh, it definitely it definitely leaves me with no idea what to do about it. Yeah, uh, and that's, that's I mean, there's yeah. other people writing lengthier books about you know. There's some pretty there are you know very principled prison abolitionist arguments that don't say and we should hit people instead right i I haven't read very many of them and i may look them up as a result of reading this book but uh, it's definitely this book leaves you in a state of helplessness i think uh because you don't agree with everything or at least i didn't agree with everything he says but you can't i can't get away from the syllogism it's not actually a syllogism i don't think but it's that kind of sort of pure logical argument i can't get away from that no matter how much i try to and since i don't think a system of flogging is possible even if it would be desirable i just don't Mm -hmm. think that's something we could do anytime in my lifetime i uh i don't know what to do after this book and of course a lot of good books leave you in that position but it's still an uncomfortable place to be (laughs) no man i mean that that just i mean it opens up even like i was i was trying to figure out how to talk about like this book in relationship to like he wrote it in 2011 um you know, I, I was curious about like that's the you know that's the middle of Obama's eight years, right? Um, yeah. And so, in some ways, I even I don't know like in some ways, it's kind of a hopeful book in the sense that like he thinks we can actually tackle prison reform from the ground up because he like you said he attacks the very idea from how it began as like a you know like you know the idea of penitence penitentiary. It was a you know semi and at times explicitly religious. A religious idea about reform and he thinks the idea from the beginning was toxic um yeah. and so in some ways like i feel like it's actually this book kind of has this like semi-hopeful <laughs> obama era you know message that like maybe we can change the entire way we do something whereas like that's i feel like part of this book just reinforced my state of like i, I don't know how you have a big society um with that has some sort of wealth without just exploitation happening at some terrible level somewhere, you know? And that's not even meant to be like, 
again, I'm, I'm probably more progressive. I don't mean to get into pure politics, but it just seems like it doesn't, if you hit a certain threshold of people living in the same country, trying to make a, a living, it doesn't matter almost what system you have. Like there's this exploitation happening within the system that just seems ineradicable. So that's where I'm left. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, sorry. I mean, there's a lot of things about <laughs> modern politics and modern life that makes me think that the the right idea is to just give up and move into the mountains somewhere and slowly starve to death because I don't know how to live in the mountains. Uh, but <laughs> this book didn't make me feel less that way. Uh. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's true, man. It's true. I, what was interesting to me about this book and why it was, I think, a good read is that it, 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 I immediately started to like see its ideas everywhere. I mean, part of it's because yeah. the kind of books that I'm already reading, like King Leopold's Ghost is all about, you know, political, you know, kind of management through violence. But even um, uh, I've, I've, I was rereading Flannery O'Connor's um, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Um, have yeah. you read that one? Have you read that? Uh, that I have. Specific? It's been a minute. So I, I, you know, I remember what yeah. happens, but it, I wouldn't want to try to okay, do a well, narrow read of it right now. No, but, no. Yeah. yeah. Well, this will be a quick AP test for you. It's fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, but first of all, we have to say before I get to anything else, it has the best line in like all of like definitely Southern Gothic literature, but maybe just literature, which is like she would have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. That's just, I mean, that's that's amazing uh, yeah. and funny. But like, but so the whole story is about you know this grandma and her family kind of going off the beaten path and running into an escaped convict called the Misfit. And I, I was crazy because I'm reading this one of my favorite stories, and uh, Peter Moskos talks about the prison system. Um, to echo Charles Dickens, is just burying people alive. That's what all we're yeah. doing. We're just burying people alive. And here's the misfit, um, just talking about. I never was a bad boy that I remember of, but somewhere along the line, I'd done something wrong and got sent to the penitentiary. I was buried alive. I was like, and it just like he, he repeats this line again and again. I was buried alive. I was buried alive, and it was I don't know. It was crazy that like, yeah, that I just it's definitely the book that had the sort of ideas which as soon as I was made aware of them, they just stood out everywhere else I was looking. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know. I think it's a weird little book, and I don't know. I don't know, but I know that I'm going to think about it more than a lot of other stuff I've read lately. That uh, you know might in other ways be better might be more consistent in some ways right. but it's definitely going to stick with me in a way that some of this other stuff won't i don't know uh, i'm glad i read it i am too i do yeah i am too i guess the one one point i wanted to bring up because he i was surprised he addressed this where he talks about um maybe some of our fears about flogging people have to do with what flogging does to the person holding the whip as opposed to the person getting whipped yeah. Um, and I liked that idea. And actually, I was glad he got there because that was one of my initial objections is I believe it was like William, I'm going to mess his last name up, William Apes or, um, was a famous abolitionist, you know, back in the way back machine in America. And he was famous because, you know, classic abolitionist, slavery is wrong, it, you know, denigrates and, you know, it hurts a fellow human being, whatever. But he added to his message, it also creates this culture of cruelty among the slave owners, um, which extends throughout the culture and creates problems beyond the plantation. And so that's the one thing that I I don't know that he, again, it's it's one of the points he kind of shrugs at and says, oh, we're scared of violence, but people spank their kids, so we shouldn't be. 
Um, <laughs> and I, and, but I, I think it's a real question of like, okay, so who, like, you know, there, there used to be professional executioners and they were designated and kept apart from society be, because people who used to execute people, you know, sorry, societies that used to execute people were worried about what that might do to a person, right? And so I, I don't think it's something to shrug at, like to, to reintroduce violence um, in a systematic way. I don't know that a slippery slope is so, you know, inconceivable, right? Because once you actually have a math equation for like six months in prison equals one lash, I mean, what does happen when like this is a successful thing and you're clearing out prisons, but now like, okay, well, he was even worse. So we got, we got to tase this guy, you know, well, now we have to like, how do we up yeah. the ante? Because at some point there's not a number of lashes that a person can take, right? They'll die. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. So I just, I think that, um, I think there is a, a dangerous mindset that says it's okay to systemize violence as long as we control it. When past societies have said, Hey, we've got to eradicate this violence because it's corrupted us. You know what I mean? Like those are societies that have actually lived through what he's talking about. And, and they got rid of a lot of it because they thought it had this cultural, you know, toxicity. No, I, um, I think that's a very... A very real point. Who's going to take the job of chief flogger? You know, who's who's Gosh. both who is that job going to attract, and what is that going to do to even a well-adjusted person who tanks that job? I think is a very real point. Um, you could probably construct a system which tries to move around that, but I, I, I hear you. There might be something categorically different in what it does to to the system as a whole to allow this kind of thing. But again, in response, who signs up to be a prison guard, and what I does know. it do to people who? are prison guards, right? Like, did you read that Mother Jones piece about a year and a half ago, two years ago, about the guy who went undercover at that private prison in Louisiana? Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I forgot about yeah. that. That was so horrible. <laughs> like, <laughs> here's a guy who is explicitly in there with the deliberate intent to sort of find out what's wrong with the system, and he finds himself enjoying the power he has over the prisoners, you know? Yeah. Like, and you know, I, I have a lot of hesitance towards the Stanford prison experiment and all that kind of stuff. I think a lot of that is, is largely not helpful for figuring out how people actually work, but you know, still people even in controlled circumstances like that become worse when they get to be prison guards. And I do, do, do we think they'd be even worse if they were floggers? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. No. And maybe, right. And obviously you, I, anyway, yeah, he, I'm sure you have an answer for how you professionalize it and keep it separate, but um, I, I think it, I actually, this is actually someone else he misuses, I feel like, is he misuses um, Bentham's Panopticon, right? Yeah. Um, so the, to the extent that Bentham was advocating an actual prison, okay, it was maybe, you know, it was, it, 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 it supports what he's talking about as far as like this revolution of locking people up as a way to control them. But when, from what, as far as how Bentham has been read since, you know, he first wrote something, People have mostly talked about the Panopticon as an illustration of how power is a structure, right? How how power is experienced by people mostly because of their structural relationship to each other, um, and I think that removes free will a little too much from from my liking. But it's exactly what you're saying that you put someone in charge of other people, and at at some point there is this structural weakness that sways a person, I think, or at least tempts them or whatever however you want to say it toward a certain abuse right i think and that i mean so i i, I don't know i think i think having flogging be a part of a system <laughs> but that the issue is like you always say is like 
but we already have prison guards beating prisoners, you know? We already have prison gangs running prisons. Having six lashes seems like such a better thing than gang violence. (laughs) And I don't know. There's a conservative point that is sometimes bandied about. I can't remember who said it, and I hate people who do this. The left says, the right says. I hate it, but I'm going to do it because I can't remember who says it. But that (laughs) uh, a system hypocrisy is actually better than an honest system sometimes basically where a system where the the guards beat people but have feel at least an obligation to try to hide it might actually be better than a system where they beat them openly to to apply it here because an understanding that something is wrong does maybe shape people's behavior i don't know if i buy that right that's the argument that previous presidents ignored rule of law all the time but there's actually something much worse about the way trump just sort of really doesn't care um, was another place I read an argument like that. And no, again, I, think, I don't well, know. It preserves the I, cultural norm, even if it's even if it's defying it, right? Whereas, yeah. So even as Joe prison guard beats his prisoners, maybe even worse than the flogger, he because he feels like he has to hide it. It preserves a cultural norm that it's bad to hit people, bad to beat prisoners. And so maybe that's good. I don't know. I don't. I don't know at all if I ascribe to that. But I think it's at least worth exploring because you know this would be a radical restructuring of our society to actually have this kind of flogging and it would make us one of what three or four countries that does something like this you know yeah the other countries that do this aren't you know i I don't want to like malaysia has a number of structural problems right like malaysia is is is, if you read broader news like i don't mean i don't mean to like it's got a number of other problems is that really the society we want to emulate here you know i don't know yeah, no, it is interesting that he, he lists all these alternative societies and he's so he's so derisive toward Western Europe, which is probably our closest parallel culturally. <laughs> but he's like, no, but Singapore, <laughs> who has a whole different tradition of, you know, punishment and like they have a different cultural, you know, history than we do, much more than England does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but let's dismiss England and talk about Singapore. I think there's a problem there as well. Um well, so I think as we maybe tail toward the end, I, I just wanted to go off the radar or off the rails completely and ask you, have you seen Black Panther? Of course I've seen Black Panther. Don't ask silly questions like that. I know. Okay. So <laughs> I, so you at one point, you and you and your awesome wife did a like a comprehensive ranking of Marvel movies. I wanted, where is Black, Black Panther rank for you? Yeah. So Aaron and I were talking today about whether we might with avengers 3 coming out try to revisit that project for the six or seven movies that came out since and i don't know but i've been thinking about it a lot i think black panther definitely has to be one of the top movies in the franchise i think i would say ranking art is useless and should be punishable by flogging actually Uh, (laughs) but in the meantime since it's not uh i think i don't know the only other movie that i think you'd want to put up there is is Previously, what I thought was the best movie in the franchise, and a lot of people agree, is Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Um, and I think Black Panther, I'm not sure if it's better than Winter Soldier. Um, I also don't know how to rank them because they're very different movies. It's so right? different, like, yeah. I think that Black Panther is much more audacious than anything else they've done. It's much more politically relevant. Um, you know, it's getting a lot of criticism on various sides for its politics, and I'm not uh, you know, going to have a lengthy discussion with you about many of them because I don't really think I have anything to contribute to sort of the project of black liberation on a podcast as presented by this movie. I think that's probably something I should be quiet about and listen instead. But the fact that it even raises some of those questions, the fact that Killmonger is as sympathetic as he is, I think is really remarkable that Disney let someone do that, 
right? And it gives no, me some I, hope I for, for these movies going forward. <laughs> it's actually that the one major criticism I would have of the movie is actually, if I was going to change one thing, okay, spoiler alert, I guess this is on the internet and people, I guess, flog other people for spoilers not being alerted. Um, but spoiler alert. So the one, the one, the one particular narrative thing I would have absolutely changed is Killmonger shooting his girlfriend. That's so stupid. That's such a stupid. Because I th- and they want to do it, I think, to try and establish, um, you know, his his evilness, right? That he is a he, he is not just a sympathetic kid from Oakland trying to reclaim what's his, that he is an enemy because if he's not an enemy, even if he's a complicated enemy, right, he has to be the enemy. Um, otherwise black Panther won't be as nearly heroic seeming if he takes out this legitimate, you know, heir to the throne, right. Who is so sociopathic that he would shoot his girlfriend in cold blood. And so I think I says so cuz I actually I I think Killmonger is the best part of the movie in a lot of ways, right? I think he is the most fascinating character. Um but they I they they just they I I was so mad when he shot her because like it takes away so much of what they're trying to do with him everywhere else. Cuz the rest of the movie it was like, well, he has some good points, but like, I don't know, I watched him shoot his girlfriend in the head. <laughs> well, but I think so I don't know. Some people have been making the argument that that I think it's a very important scene, and some people have been making the argument that that's just essential to the plot of the movie because otherwise he's just right. Now I don't know if I agree with that. I think there's, but it's a way of tethering it, right? Like we hate, um, you know, we hate the Empire because they're mean to Princess Leia, not because they blow up Alderaan, right? Because right. no, who cares about Alderaan? Similarly, at the end of the movie, Killmonger is talking about exporting weapons all over the world and then creating a new empire you know, a new Wakandan empire, right? Like he's not planning some kind of project of radical liberation. He's planning a, a new imperialism centered in, in Africa. But I think it's easy to miss that and to still sort of root for him, except that he's still kind of a monster personally when he shoots his girlfriend. And so like Brianna Gray, who writes for Current Affairs and uh, does a lot of stuff for Rolling Stone and yeah, such, was arguing good. that this is a very important scene. Um, and there's some broader things people have read into it, which again, I want to be a little careful about, about, you know, certain movements in black history, black liberation movements being horrible to black women, right? And again, right. I, I don't want to do more than no, acknowledge no, yeah, that that is a through line yeah. of criticism people have had. So I don't know. I think that's a key scene. I'm not sure it's a mistake. I think it might be a very important part of why the movie can work because it'd be well, very guess... easy to make Killmonger so successful, so so sympathetic that you're like, he is in fact, this is a tragedy. Like, in, in fact, T'Challa is the bad guy here. And I, I think the movie doesn't want to do that. And I think it probably shouldn't. I think that would be a weird thing to do. No, no, I, with I, Wakanda, I, th- right? like- <laughs> I, I think I agree. I, I guess I just, I'm tr- I think that, I think, I guess what I, what I couldn't do is I couldn't totally turn my, my, I th- couldn't totally turn like my desire or thirst for something a, like a little more complicated because they gesture toward it so effectively for a Marvel movie. I mean, it still has, you know, it has its hallmark beats to hit, um, but I, I I guess what my problem was is like if you're gonna so effectively create this like bigger conversation of imperialism and isolationism, um, I get that it's a Marvel movie and you have to also bring things to a personal level. But I I, I thought Killmonger was gonna be the bad guy no matter what. You know he burns all the blue flowers or what like you know he's still doing terrible <laughs> things right. Like but I I just thought that killing his girlfriend was like so sociopathic. You can't complicate a sociopath. Do you know what I mean? Like. Um, and so for me, at least, everything everything he does after that reads as 
much less justified, even if it was like a problematic justified, right? So like he is trying to enforce an imperialism on the world that he is also decrying, right? Which is super yeah. interesting and complicated because it's an imperialism that it, that fights imperialism, um, right? Which is sort of how the world works actually for, you know, obviously, you don't think so? Oh, sorry, was that? That was my phone vibrating. I did not have an opinion about that. I was just listening. Sorry. <laughs> we'll, we'll hopefully leave that in and or cut it out. So all that to say is like, I think the problem that I have is probably expecting too much from Marvel on some level. I just, I just, I wanted Killmonger to, to live in that complicated zone. Whereas for me, at least as a viewer, like, I don't know if you shoot your girlfriend in the face, like you're, you're just sort of a rote bad guy, you know? Yeah. Um, no, I hear that. I, I, I don't know. I, uh, I definitely, I always want more complexity from these things and I'm hesitant to say, well, but it's a superhero movie. Cause I, I don't think that necessitates being simplistic. You know, I, I, I think it could have done more. And I, I think that that's worth talking about. And I, I, I hear what you're saying at least. I, uh, no, you I I, actually, I hadn't, I hadn't thought, I mean, I didn't read the th- stuff you were referring to. And I, I do like the idea of in a movie, especially you can't just, um, it can't just be abstract, bad stuff. It has to be personalized, bad stuff. That's, that's a good argument. Well, I don't know. I, that thought occurred to me, at least, as a way to try to show that he's not he's not just like a flawed freedom fighter. There is something deeply wrong with his philosophy. But I don't know. I think it's great that we get to have these conversations about that movie. And I also think that if you told me 10 years ago there was going to be not just a big-budget Black Panther movie, but with like the incredible cast and one of the best directors working right now that made something in like an absurd amount of money, I would not have believed you at all. Like, How cool is it that we get to see these things? And that when they did make a Black Panther movie, although they probably could have done more, they didn't try to hamstring its politics completely, right? No, they, that's, no that's, yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> no, I thought, I thought the smartest thing the movie did was to put... Um, the African American experience of a kid in Oakland, in 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 conversation, you know, um, with Wakanda or whatever. Although I do think, actually, I have a friend um, uh, who made the point that, like, oh yeah, we probably shouldn't go into it, but I, I do like there. I think there's just I just hard. I, I think that uh, to your point about superhero movies not bearing too much weight, like we shouldn't say that because you, you don't want to underestimate them. I, I agree with that, but I also think like as soon as you start to put them under the microscope of you know political and cultural sophistication, it, like things will always fall apart on some level, right? Because they're 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 supposed to be these simple projections of our culture into a sort of edible framework, right? And so like for example, like Wakanda has this sort of I think homogenizing undertone, right? That like that African excellence has a certain homogeneity to it. Um, which is like a real problem, I think, in discussions of Africa. Um, and so that would actually, for me, like be an argument to not overburden comic book movies because like it can only be so many things to so many movements and ideas. Do you know what I mean? Um, I do think that's important. I think, you know, I think we can always expect, I don't know. It's always tough. We want these things to be better, but also sometimes movies try to be more. And like a lot of the problem with some of the Zack Snyder DC stuff is that it thinks <sighs> it's making some grand philosophical statement and it's just not. It's not. And so, you know, a hypothetical version of Man of Steel, which actually deals with the issues it pretends it's dealing with, would be great. 
But if we're going to be incompetent at it like that, I'd much rather have the <laughs> Avengers, which sort of broad theory is like freedom is great and it's good to be friends with people. Like, that's, <laughs> like that's not a not a profound statement, maybe, but it's a heck of a lot better than whatever gibberish Snyder was trying to do. Yeah, uh, I agree. So I don't know. I think movies are cool and it's great that we get a lot of cool movies and that I'm going to talk about them forever. But it is also good to just recognize that. In Black Panther, there's a bit where an armored rhinoceros like tears through a bunch of really cool people in awesome costumes, and that's cool. a good thing. It's a good it's thing cool. that the world allowed that to happen. <laughs> you know what the best thing is? This is our my final note on our suddenly Marvel movie podcast. Um, is that bravo for Andy Circus? You know what I mean? Like that guy has had such a killer career for being trapped in a bodysuit for a decade for Peter Jackson. To come out yeah. and be like the most one of the most interesting villains, even though he, he was like he was like the side villain, and he was still one of the most interesting villains in a Marvel movie. Kudos to you, Andy Circus. You can do anything. He's I don't know. I've read some critiques of Circus lately, and I don't know, but like it's just fun to see what he'll get up to next. Like, and it's I'm always happy to see him outside of a mocap suit. It's like, oh, there he is. Amen. What's he gonna do? He's gonna have this Amen. weird. He's gonna be this weird, like South African weapons trafficking SoundCloud rapper, and I'm just glad it happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the SoundCloud rapping was really funny. That was really good. <laughs> just um, really glad that that happened. <laughs> yeah, I was too. So, all right. Well, so okay, anything else to add about flogging? I mean, besides, I guess me one more note from me that like, and I, I hope I say this enough on every podcast we do that like <laughs> this is a conversation between friends. We're probably sometimes being glib about things we don't actually feel glib about because we're friends who are joking together. Um, I hope if anyone listens to this, they don't think we think flogging or penitentiary systems aren't serious, serious things. Um, yeah. We totally do. And if, I don't know, if our jokes are off taste, it's because we're just buddies making dumb jokes. But all I have to say is um, if you're like me and you haven't read enough, I mean, I would also recommend New Jim Crow. Um but this is a really good book, I think, to introduce people, like me at least, um, to some of the more concrete facts of how maybe the current system is failing. Just like, what was it like? It's like 2.3 million people or something. Um, That's the number he cites. I don't remember if it's gone up or down in the seven years since, but it's right. at least similar now. Yeah. So, I mean, that is that is such a huge portion um, even though it's not, like, I mean, I know statistically, like we're a big country, but like 2.3 million people is a lot of human souls to be churned through a system that I think he does show, if nothing else, is hugely destructive to human dignity. Um, so yeah, I don't know. So I recommend the book. If only, you know, I know it'll piss some people off. Um, hopefully it does. That's definitely one of the things he wants to do. Um, but it was a good introduction to maybe some specific some specific areas where uh, the current system has gone off the rails. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's definitely worth reading. And uh, if you read this and have thoughts, I'd definitely be curious what they are. So, you know, you can reach yeah. out to me at least. You can you should leave Joel alone, but you can reach out to me. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That's true. Don't talk. I don't have time. I didn't sleep last night. I've got a child. I don't have time for this. Don't email. Email Bill. Um, Sounds good. <laughs> just Okay. Um, so, yeah, any, any, any last thoughts, Bill? Uh, no, I, th I think we've pretty much gone over it. The only other thing I'd say is our spring big read, which is what the podcast is called. And thus, technically, <laughs> this is... I always think it's great when your second podcast episode breaks the rules of the breaks podcast. Breaks all the rules. I think that's, I think that's good. Um, we announced this on Twitter and Facebook, but it's Kazuo Ishiguro's The Unconsoled. And we're planning to record that in about a month. So end of April, beginning of May. 
So if you want to read along, uh, feel free to do so. If you don't want to read along, you're probably not caring what I have to say anyway, but that's fine. You don't you don't have to read along. Um, but in about a month, we're going to go through our, our read on that. So looking forward to that too. Yeah, no, please read. And uh, yeah, please, you know, keep listening. Tell us what you think. This has been a fun project so far. Yeah. All right. Well, see you next time then. All right. Talk to you later. Sounds good. Final thanks to Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their song Water Song. Uh, you can find both Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc on SoundCloud under their names. Please feel free to write us a review on iTunes, and you should be able to find new episodes of The Big Readcast and its attendant occasional small readcasts on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and uh, most other major podcast providers. Please let us know if there's something you'd like us to use instead, or, well, not instead, but in addition to, to make your life easier. Thanks very much, and see you next month.